Hello, and thank you for joining us again on Into the Prey. We've got a quick favour to ask you guys before listening to this week's episode. We want to ask you to go ahead to rate and review Into the Prey so that we can lift the level of what we're doing further. Visibility in the podcast charts would help with that massively. It would also help to address the imbalance where folk can often be very specific and more than willing to leave reviews or so-called reviews when they're not happy with what we're doing. So there are, we believe, a vast majority of you who are happy and appreciative and grateful it would be very good to convert that into rates and reviews that give us a more reflective presence in the podcast chart. So if you go ahead and do that, we've also got a new Patreon page. If you want to become one of our patrons, stroke supporters, please do follow that link, look at the information and consider doing that as well. Thanks again for listening and please do feel free to use the contact page to drop us a line with any questions, thoughts or reflections. The devil wants that. On the one half is the blessing camp and on the other half is the repent camp. That's what the devil wants, okay? And that is what's happening. But actually, it comes back to this misunderstanding of what it means to, to know and worship and love a good God. Is that the blessing is the repentance. God, for all intents and purposes, needn't be there. And we need to recapture a sense of the godness of God the greatness of God, the majesty of God. One Corinthians twelve verses four through to seven. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in every one. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Short passage today, and um, I felt a need just to kind of um, slow down a bit rather than taking bigger chunks in some kind of attempt to get through the entire book of 1 Corinthians in a certain time frame. That's not the priority. The priority is to be able to um, grow, to recognize what the, what the Lord is saying to each of us. Um, primarily, I'm doing that for myself. I can only do it for myself and then I can share this this content in the hope that it's that that growth is also happening um at your ends but if we get through this in in the rest of the year then great if not then it doesn't matter it doesn't matter at all so I felt like I might have wanted to have taken verses 4 through to 11 today but actually just um I had one big thought this this week and that's all that really matters, isn't it, as I come to this now. It's that I want to be faithful to to dealing with, I think, what what I feel impressed upon my heart, and um, but, but just not rushing, um, not rushing. So here we are, here are just a few short verses um, coming to one big thought, I think, in verse 7 to do with the common good. Now I'll come to that in just a moment, but I want to just kind of rewind a little bit and go back to the last week and just as a, a little... Um, just picking up on something that that I think is really important, especially for today. Now, looking back at verse one of of this chapter, now concerning spiritual gifts. Um, if you look at the if you look at the Greek occasionally, you might use a a, a Greek kind of lexicon, or you might look at um, a Strong's Concordance or something. Um, this Greek word pneumatikos, okay, that's the spiritual there in verse one of this of this chapter pneumatikos and the word pneuma is of course the word for spirit and 
what what interested me this week as I was looking at this is this is this notion of the word spiritual and and the the general way that that is supposed to under, be understood as we read it pneumatikos is the word and spiritual gifts and the the word gifts as we'll see in a, ver- a few verses in just a moment is charisma you know we we talk of the charisms the charisms um uh, you, you talk and we talk and think of people who have charisma, that kind of thing. But that's so it's pneumaticos and charisma. Now, the, the thing that struck me as I was looking at this this week and preparing it, it reminded me of one of the best chapters that I've read in any book in recent years. I hope you find these podcasts helpful generally, but especially as I just kind of as I as I think and as I try and form something that's helpful here I'm reminded of things that I've found helpful over the years and one of them is a book by Paul Tripp if you don't know Paul Tripp he's one of the best um he's brilliant he's he's a really helpful um guy from a kind of uh, I'm trying to think who whose circles he would operate in I mean he would be linked to the like of likes of desiring God but he's he's kind of relationally connected more widely than that um Anyway, you can find out about Paul Tripp yourself. Just go ahead and Paul David Tripp. You can find out about him. He's got like a, ca- a counselling background and I think he's been involved. He was involved in the disaster at, Rise, um, at Mars Hill with Mark Driscoll. I think the team of elders there had brought him in to be of some help and I think his assessment of the situation there with Mark was devastatingly, um, just was not good. I think he was quoted in that podcast series as saying something to the effect of he had never come across something as toxic or as dysfunctional as the culture um, there. So anyway, but one of his books, and he's written a lot of books, um, just trying to think off the top of my head, one of the one of the books that I would recommend is a book called Dangerous Calling, and that's really getting at, getting at this dysfunctional, unbiblical um, penchant that we all have for, for Christian leadership to be some kind of uh, elevated and separated from the main body type of experience and Paul Paul goes into his into the thought in that book that that's actually a very dangerous calling to be a any kind of Christian leader church leader what have you and that when we elevate church leaders and put them on a platform and put them behind a mask and they're not really uh, an incorporated part of the whole. It's a very, very dangerous reality, not only for the for the pastor and his family, but for the church at large. And so that would that would be something I'd recommend. He's written quite a few devotionals, um, New Morning Mercies, that kind of thing. If you're looking for a daily devotional, but one of the one of the books, um, it's actually not so much the book as a whole, but just a chapter within the book that I remember just thinking that's one of the best chapters that I've read in a long time is in his book, A Broken Down House. And the chapter is called Resisting Spirituality. Resisting Spirituality. And that's what I was reminded of this week as I was preparing, as I came across these three verses, four, five, six, and seven, sorry, four verses. But specifically thinking about pneumaticos and this context in which Paul is addressing spiritual gifts in a, in a, general, in a generic way. He goes on to specific gifts. We'll see that in this chapter as he kind of, uh, as it kind of whittles down from a, a longer list of gifts of the Holy Spirit um, to just to just two really focusing on, on prophecy and tongues and we'll come to that in, in weeks ahead but I want to I want to just relate what I want to say today to some ex- excerpts from this chapter resisting spirituality because when I read it at the time 
I remember thinking that is exactly it. Um, in terms of what is often considered to be sound, orthodox, Christian spirituality, biblically faithful, that kind of thing, when in reality it's nothing of the sort. And remembering the Corinthians here in this passage, there would have been no shortage of spiritual experiences, powerful spiritual experiences. You know, Paul has been at pains in previous chapters to point out that you know that the um, the idols aren't actually anything; they're mute, as he said in uh, in our session last week. Um, in verse two, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. So he's not he he he's making this distinction between the living God and these idols like Dagon, who fell fa- face flat um, repeatedly and then was decapitated. But th- there are powerful demonic experiences in the world. Um, I did a conversation with with Gavin Ashenden recently looking at these apparent so-called Marian apparitions in Spain in the 60s where apparently kids were caught up into some kind of ecstasy and some child psychologist making the point, well, there's one thing that kids can't do and that's fake ecstasy. And I'm like, yeah, unless it's demonic. I mean, that is such an elementary thought, is it not? So there's, there's no... The devil masquerades as an angel of light and... Um, you know, thinking of the end times, there will be increasing, I think, increasing powerful spiritual manifestations of the demonic in the world that will that will result in the deception of many, maybe many of the so-called household of faith. I don't know. But what I'm trying to say here is that the, the Corinthians wouldn't have been bored spiritually. You know, there would have been experiences of the demonic. They would have seen things. That you, even when we read the scriptures, we can see that, can't we? Particularly the Gospels. You know, 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark, you just, how much demonic activity do we see? So um, I think what we're supposed to keep in mind here is that there are spiritual cultures, environments, that kind of thing. And even within this this New Testament Christian church, um, there was, I think, of a, 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 a quite a spectrum of different spiritual experiences in different places. Now, that might have been some of them who had felt completely fine on a conscious le- conscience level going to a, a big gathering in a, in a temple and partaking in a, a, an essentially a, pa- a pagan feast. And, you know, God only knows what spiritual activity was going on there that the Corinthian Christians in this church who, who were kind of witnessing, maybe even allured by, drawn to, that kind of thing. There is something in the human nature isn't that i think that's drawn to the supernatural this is why we see this proliferation of, of films obsessed with the supernatural almost always skewed to not represent the reality of the spiritual realm the of the angelic and the demonic but there is this fascination i mean there really is if you, if you just spend a cursory few minutes looking through the, the films available to to stream or whatever you know it's just it's there continually. So there is something within us, I think, that is inherently drawn uh, to the spiritual. So when Paul opens this chapter now concerning spiritual gifts, there is this this general spirituality in mind that we're supposed to, I think, we're supposed to keep in mind, and that there is a distinction, of course, between a generic spirituality and genuine Christian spirituality that is submitted to the lordship of. Jesus Christ, and that is the main priority of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? It's to 
trumpet this the lordship of Jesus Christ. So what I'm trying to say this morning is that there are spiritual there's spirituality that is to be resisted because it's not actually submitted to the lordship of Christ. And in Paul Tripp's book, The Broken Down House, where this chapter, I'd encourage you to try and find it if you can. I'm going to try and help this morning by reading a few little bits that might suffice, actually. You might not need to buy the whole book or find the whole chapter. But um, he's making this point that that, um, that when he talks about resisting spirituality, he's he's talking about resisting the type of spirituality that often that often um, is considered to be legitimate, and actually, there's no real fruit. Someone who, you know, when when Jesus says when when he talks about those who were who the, those who went out from them or from the company of the you know the disciples and Jesus following whatever proved themselves as never having been part of it in any point in any point, and that their leaving was indicative of the fact that their spirituality wasn't and that all their conversion wasn't genuine and i think that's what we're paul tripp goes after in his chapter here is that there is a, a pandemic issue where there are up and down the the country and across the world you know there are churches that facilitate a form of spirituality that actually isn't rooted in in submission to the lordship of jesus christ and that is the only spirituality that is acceptable to god isn't it and yet there are many forms i think of so let's go let's go through these verses as i said earlier i want to come to the common good issue in verse seven and uh, um the, what is the common good well, it's seen by paul's metaphor of the human body isn't it we're going to come to that next in the next few weeks in verses 14 through to 26 the common good um you know, thinking of all, you know, all members of a human body working in complementary harmony. Think, why don't you think now? Just think about the detail of that. Joint joints articulating against other joints, ligaments cooperating with bones, or tendons connectively serving muscles, organs supporting the stomach organization. Small, unpresentable alveoli. Think of the little alveoli in your lungs that make gaseous exchange possible and breathing possible. You know, making the difference between life and death, microscopic cells protecting the health of the whole. The, the common good that Paul is referring to here was a well-known concept, going back to the likes of Plato and what have, what have you. The common good is the complementary priority of one individual part existing and functioning to serve the whole. I'll say that again. The common good is the complementary priority of one individual part existing and functioning to serve the whole. Um, let's think, let's just, I want to read you Romans 12, 9 to 21, because I think this is the, the that metaphor that we will see in the next few weeks in the same chapter. The metaphor of the body applied into New Testament Christian living is this, we see this, I think, in Romans 12, 9. Let love, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight, repay no one for evil, but give thought to what is honourable 
in the sight of all, if possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think that's a really helpful passage to think about moving beyond a, a metaphor of the human body into something that's applied in Christian living. Romans 12, 9 to 21, take, take time and, and check that out in your own time. But is this what we actually have? What I've just read there, you know, it finishes, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a sense in which the, the common good that Paul's referring to here in verse 7 of, of, our, sesh, of our passage today, um, that that common good is supposed to be understood as the opposite of evil. It's worth thinking about that, isn't it? You know, that the common good, if something is, is functioning for the common good, that's, that, that is the opposite of evil. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that that is what we have across the board. And I think this is where Paul Tripp's thoughts about resisting spirituality come in. I think what we do have is this pseudo-spirituality a lot of the time. Um, and again, one of the things I'm, I'm going to try and do today is just refer to, the, to kind of the extremes as a strategy of the devil. You know, there are forms of spirituality um, in cessationism that deny that the Holy Spirit gives gifts today or at the opposite end of the maze, we have the hypercharismatics who abuse gifts. And I want to say that these are pseudo-spiritualities because they're not rooted in the Lordship of Christ ultimately. Um, I'm aware as well, conscious that I'm going to go through here. Um, there are some things that I could focus on in our passage, but um, you know, like if you just look at the text again, verse four. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all. Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of move over that a little bit more this week because, as I say, I want to focus on this issue of verse 7 more than anything. This thought of of genuine spirituality, generic spirituality that Paul starts off by alluding to, and then this distinct form of spirituality. We're supposed to be distinctly spiritual, aren't we? As those who are genuinely submitted to to the Lordship of Jesus. Um To rightly understand the spiritual gifts, which is the, obviously the focus of this chapter, means rightly understanding the person of the Holy Spirit, which means being genuinely submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's for me as a summary statement that I've written for this uh, focus. To rightly understand the spiritual gifts means rightly understanding the person of the Holy Spirit which means being genuinely submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That, again, is the, is the overwhelming priority of the Holy Spirit, is to herald this, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Listen to this quote. Remember Israel, on the way to make sacrifice to Jehovah, they stopped and did homage to Baal. Remember Judas, he attended the supper after he said Jesus... Remember Judas, he attended the supper after he sold Jesus for a silver penny. 
Remember the Pharisees, so publicly committed, yet they plotted Jesus' death. What seems so very spiritual on the surface may not be in reality a matter of the heart. So I want to come to this 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 chapter, resist spirituality, and again, hopefully, this will become clear why I'm talking about this. Thinking of the verse seven of the common good and the importance of that, and how the how that relates to the the metaphor of the human body. It's going to read you a couple of these um, excerpts from that chapter from Paul Tripp. This side of heaven, we must resist defining spirituality as anything other than a deep devotion to Christ, the fruit of which is a lifestyle of daily worship of him and active service in his kingdom. We must be keenly aware of the covert danger of a Christless Christianity, which passes itself off as something it is not, and in so doing has the power to deceive and derail many. Just to, just want to comment on that quickly, thinking about my um, experiences in a very large seeker-sensitive church in the UK, um, for most of my twenties, um, one of one of the biggest concerns, and again, I've 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 written this in detail in some ways, um, at, le- at least that I thought was relevant, uh, appropriate. That one of the biggest concerns I had in that large church was that it, it facilitated the appearance of Christian discipleship or it facilitated the appearance of even salvation. And yet I became convinced, I became persuaded that there was it wasn't Christian discipleship at all. And so in other words, what what is the what is the worst thing that a local church can do? Well, I think I think the answer to that is pretty straightforward. I think the worst thing that a local church can do is to facilitate the appearance of Christian discipleship when in reality covering over the the lack of Christian discipleship. And if you take that to its if it's it's kind of its fullest um, uh, fullest implication, it's it's when churches facilitate the appearance of people coming to faith when in fact they are not. In other words, when you think of these. You know, let's have a show of hands, you know, and the number of times I witnessed that and felt troubled by it and, and unsure that there was a sense of genuineness to it. When people were apparently respond, what were the people apparently responding to? Did people have an understanding of the Lordship of, of Jesus Christ? Did he did people have an understanding of what it meant to uh, to become a new creation, to to understand what it meant to um to become submitted and surrendered to Jesus in every aspect of life. Did, did people who were putting their hands up left, right, and said, did they have an understanding of that? It's very difficult to, to believe that they did when there wasn't that clear proclamation of those basic gospel truths from, from the teaching session or from the platform. Of course, of course, God can save, sovereignly save and reveal himself to whoever he wants at whatever part of the planet he wants to do that. He can do that whatever he wants, but what I'm talking about here is the kind of systemic um, cultures where something is considered to be Christian spirituality and actually it's it's lacking and it's missing and it's void of the most crucial, critical parts that make something Christian spirituality. Tripp goes on, I believe many of our churches implicitly and unintentionally teach a, spirit, a false spirituality that fosters inauthentic faith. 
This false spirituality promotes new false conversions, masks existing false conversions, often for years, and cripples the life effectiveness of genuine believers by causing them to lose focus and direction. Tripp goes on to say, I am deeply persuaded that we must resist with all of our might the kind of self-satisfied spirituality that marks the life of so many believers. And I am further persuaded that this pseudo-spirituality is one of the cruel deceptions of a wily enemy. With the greatest of respect to Tripp, I couldn't have put that better myself. I couldn't have um, hoped to have of communicates and this is why it probably why it resonated with me so much the number of years ago when I read it and I've revisited it this week I want to just make the point here this is important okay listen up that this what trip is is going after here and in, in referring to pseudo spirituality pseudo Christian spirituality etc is when you have an a kind of a, a disconnect between say a Christian that goes along to church every week is very involved in the life of a church, serving left, right and centre, and yet there is something fundamentally missing from their lives. It's almost like they're living a double life. So he's thinking more of the individual cases where that becomes apparent, and I'm sure people thinking can feel that. Maybe you're feeling that yourself this morning. Maybe you, maybe you do feel like you live a double life and that there's one aspect of your life that is surrendered to the to the kind of aesthetic externals of what it of what christian spirituality means to you but then there's something kind of hidden and counter to that in, in a way that other, maybe maybe you feel and I, and I want to encourage you this morning if that is you don't feel condemned I, this is a work of the holy spirit i think to reveal at this time in history a lot of what is false a lot of what is ca- counterfeit and that has been as paul tripp's quote just alluded to there is often for years decades that certain things go along as being regarded as sound and solid and whatever and actually then they're, they're not and so it's a work of the spirit it says in ephesians five eleven, paul says to the church in ephesus there to have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness but rather expose them if you read the the first verse of hosea chapter 7 it says there were something to the effect of that when the lord would heal ephraim when he would heal his covenant people he he reveals iniquity and so if you, this morning, if you're listening to this and you're, and you're recognizing a sense of disconnect between either the church that you go to, your own personal devotion to, to Jesus, whatever, and what you read in the Bible, don't feel despairing about that. Feel, feel, um, feel the grace and the mercy that that is and turn to him. You can turn to him now. Turn this podcast off. Just turn it off if you need to spend some time in prayer. You know, maybe that's all you needed to hear from this session. There's prob- probably some other bits that might be helpful. But what I'm trying to say is that this isn't a condemnation. This is a, a, a gracious work of the Holy Spirit to reveal things. And, of course, within that, there will be revealed that th- those and systems and spirits that have no intention of submitting to the Lordship of, of Jesus. Um, and that's okay. This is why the division is important. Separation is holy. It's not this It's not this um, thing that the, the kind of fake Christian unions of the world want to make out that it is separation and division and you know is essential so paul was going after this on a more individual level but i want to make the point this morning that i think there's a i want to take it a step further in the sense of that i think pseudo spirituality thinking because in in this chapter we are thinking in the, about the intense work of the holy spirit and giving gifts individually that's what we've just read and we're going to read again in a moment that he gives gifts to everyone, to each one of us, on a very personal, individual level. 
It's not like God has a certain number of gifts on a shelf and he just distributes amongst the 7 billion people on the planet or however many people are Christians, truly Christians, um, and everybody should look quite similar. There's carbon copies. that No, there is, a, there is a giving of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that is entirely individual, bespoke, and he gives gifts, in, in hence that clip from Narnia last week, you know, the way that Father Christmas gave those gifts to the, to, 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 um, to the children was very personal. It's almost like the gifts are made for them individually, and I think that's how we're supposed to understand that. But there is also the sense in which there is a corporate whole responsibility. It's intensely individual and intensely collective or corporate. And so thinking of this pseudo-spirituality that, that can be found and seen, identified, exposed and healed on an individual level, there is also a sense in which I think there is a pseudo-spirituality crisis corporately, which is why we have denominations. Which is why we have denomination, a denominational maze and not a denominational spectrum, which is why navigating a maze is quite different to navigating a spectrum. What do I mean by that? Well, essentially what I'm getting at is this extreme difference between cessationists who believe that the Bible and that God teaches that there is no gift of the Holy Spirit today compared with hyper forms of of charismatic church cultures that abuse gifts and make it all about the gifts to the point that there is a genuine question mark, I think, over whether there is genuine submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ or not. My point here and my, my, what I want to assert this morning is that when you have a denial of the gifts of the Spirit and when you have an abuse of them, that fundamentally you have an issue of Lord, a submission to the Lordship of Jesus in both extremes. And so rather than this just being to do with a kind of individual level, there are great corporate-wide collective issues that I think result in a very lopsided body, to pick up Paul's metaphor. If you're interested in what a, a human body looks like physiologically that only trains one part of itself and doesn't have a, a kind of, uh, you know, a healthy emphasis on each individual part, I'll put, some photo, I'll put a link to some photos in the show notes. You know, bodybuilders who only train the upper half of their body or whatever, you know, massive chest, massive shoulders, massive arms, and then pathetic, dwindly little, you know, quads and calves and whatever. It just looks ridiculous and is ridiculous. And that's a picture, I think, to take it beyond Paul's metaphor of of where the body is actually at. Um, That's what happens, I think, when there's a false spiritual, a pseudo-spirituality. Um... And by the way, pseudo-spirituality, the answer to that is quite simply surrender, isn't it? Just like we can all have forms of spirituality and deny its power, um, and the answer to that is to submit to Jesus, is to come to God. Now, I'm trying to move through this nice and quickly. Um, Symptoms of pseudo-spirituality, well, let me just go through this quickly. Disconnections between professions of the gospel and genuine transformed lifestyles. Professions of faith in Jesus and entitled dismissiveness of the things he says when it is uncomfortable or inconvenient. This is why we have denominations, I think. Um, uh, you know, at, at the most basic level, 
when we become a Christian, quote unquote, we we it's Galatians two nineteen. For I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. How many people in the large seeker sensitive church that I alluded to a moment or two ago understood that? This life I live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is no, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's no longer I who live. What? How, how different that is to the way that the gospel is often proclaimed. Invitation to respond to the gospel is often presented I mean, it's worth asking the question, how many people of the hundreds that I saw respond in, in that way to a form of Christian spirituality? How many of them would have responded had they understood the reality of what it means when you become a Christian, when you truly become a Christian? Life doesn't necessarily get easier. Yes, you, your peace with God is, that's the glory. You're at peace with God. But that will put you in into direct confrontation with the world, won't it? It won't mean that your life suddenly becomes a walk in the park wandering around parks in Bradford with, you know, Bethel music playing in your ear and just worshipping God because everything's hunky-dory. No, you become, you become in confrontation with a world that hates Jesus Christ, that despises him, and, will, and that will, if you are faithful to him, also despise you too. That's what Jesus says if you read the gospel, read the gospel of John. So symptoms of pseudo-spirituality, no fruit of the Spirit, no gifts of the Spirit, offshooting into denominations rather than surrendering to the Scriptures, no active witnessing about the glory of Jesus, domination by the fear of man and not the fear of God. Think about the New Testament church. Think about the way that there were the pseudo-spiritual um, people. I'm trying to think of a Is it a nice? Who was it that got um, slain in the New Testament? There's an example of post-resurrection judgment of God. <laughs> Um, killing people who would, I think they'd stolen money or something, they'd kept some money, I can't quite remember the detail of it, but there was a false spirituality there, wasn't there? These guys were regarded to be in the, in the, in the community and they were stealing, you know, and it was tantamount to testing the Holy Spirit and God, God killed them. Where's the fear of that in the church today? Where's the fear of that in, in your church or in our gathering or in the church as a whole? Is there the fear of God in that way? That sense of his imminence, which isn't just related to comfort and goosebumps and oh, the presence of God, but actually is to do with the imminence of the majesty and the weight and the cabod of God. We heard that from Melvin Tinker. If you've not listened to a Friday session of this podcast, please do. It's one of the best conversations I've had in a while. You know, we have a weightless God. We have a weightless spirituality. We don't have a sense of the majesty and of the fear of him, do we? I mean, do, do you? It's a, I, I'm trying to make my voice sound like a question because it is partly a question for you this morning, is it? Do you, do you have a sense of the fear of God? When was the last time you spoke to somebody who conveyed a sense of the fear of God in their lives? Domination by the fear of man. How many, how many pseudo-spiritualities, sp- pseudo-spiritual cultures are based on, you know, essentially the fear of an individual? 
the fear of a, a, a celebrity, the fear of a charisma. I think another symptom is mixed or confused standings for one issue biblically and, capit- and capitulating on another, picking up on Michael Nazir Ali's session a few a month or so back you know he talked about this capitulation i think that's a brilliant word to sum up so much of what goes on within the establishment i spoke with somebody this week who has made a a, a brave stand regarding the issue of homosexuality but was soft on what the bible teaches about spiritual authority differences between men and women I think that's a, I think that is a symptom of pseudo spirituality, where you have a, make a stand for one thing but capitulate on another. These these are Paul Tripp's um, summaries, where basically people's um, commitment is to Christianity and to church, as opposed to commitment to Jesus Himself. How many of us can recognise that? Maybe in our own lives somewhere. And again, this is what I'm trying to hold out as a opportunity for people to repent this morning do you see that commitment to 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 a church or to christianity over and above your commitment to him personally do you see that do you recognize that in yourself if you do turn to him again stop the podcast turn to him trip talks about knowledge over wisdom so this preference of having a head full of knowledge but no application thereof in other words no wisdom Systems of theology, or what I would say denominations, that's what denominations are, aren't they? Just systems of preferred theologies versus rules for Christian maturity. Again, I've put Romans 12 in brackets there. That is really Christian maturity, that passage that I read out earlier. Um, Doing new religious things versus the heart obedience to Jesus. Paul Tripp, he gives the example of a kid that goes storming down the corridor at home because his his mum had asked him to stop playing on the computer and go and tidy his room. And of course, he does it slamming doors and gesticulating and complaining and whinging as he goes. Now, is that obedience? Well, or is it just um, conformity to an external power or authority there's a difference and jesus wants heart obedience doesn't he he wants voluntary love he doesn't want petulant um conformity and the final one he talks about is ministry activity versus a christ-like lifestyle how often does does that ring true you know where you're kind of saved quote unquote saved into a church saved into a system and you're just kind of like funneled into a way of serving task focus and all the while you haven't got a clue about galatians 2 what a what a recipe for disaster this is guys like some of you may not have experiences maybe this is why i can talk with more with more sense of uh zeal about this is that i've experienced this firsthand i've seen it with my own eyes for for a decade people supposedly meeting jesus and then getting funneled into a coffee shop to serve or into a some kind of you know wrapping dvd um resources with the the glitzy front covers of all the the celebrity church leaders of the church and all the while they've got who 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 on earth is jesus who the heck is the apostle paul What's Galatians 2.19? What does that mean for me? Do I even know Jesus? Do I even know God? Just to, I want to just close here because 
I've gone on for longer than I wanted to, and I may revisit some of this next week. But the issue in Corinth, guys, make no mistake, is that there were these elitist spiritualities, thinking that they had it all together. Um, the, the, the kind of general Christian spirituality of those who were in Corinth meant that they didn't... There was a, there was a, there was a sense in which they had it all together, yeah? Um, or the super spirituality of some of the other Corinthians, you know, and it links back to Paul's addressing this, these cliques of some who followed Apollos, some who followed blah, blah, blah. Just saying blah, 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 blah. That just reminded me of a Gretna Thunberg clip I saw in the week. Gosh, just how, how, how many, how, how many of you get annoyed by that? Um, Nevertheless, there was a blah, blah, blah. There was, there was that sense in which the Corinthians, their own form of super spirituality showed that they hadn't really understood the Holy Spirit much at all. You know, platform showing off their gifts and prophesying, one prophesying over another, who prophesied over another, who prophesied over another, and people in the midst were like, what's going on? God was in the midst going, guys, what are you doing? What role should mystery and humility play in general Christian spirituality that comes from joyful surrender to the Lordship of Jesus? What what would be reformed among the church if this was the case? Um, And what I'm arguing this morning is that the general Christian spirituality of those who deny the gift of the Spirit and the general Christian spirituality of those who abuse the gifts is not wholly submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm arguing this morning. This passage is dealing with varieties of gift, service and activity, and they're all under the the loving, providential hand of God. We don't have time to go into those today, but what I want to make the point is we should have a a multicoloured, multi-textured, expansive tapestry woven by God in his wisdom. And in reality, we have a beige laminated perishing facade constructed by man. Let me say that again, because I want to just finish this with the, with the emphasis on two things. The fact that these, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are individual to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's our main verse today. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So I want to finish with this emphasis on, on the individual, um, the way that he gives gifts um we should have a multicolored multi-textured expansive tapestry woven by God in his wisdom but in reality we have i think a beige laminated perishing facade constructed by man you know when you think of one man all singing or dancing individual who's expected to to lead the church you know fulfill all the different giftings of the spirit himself as though he's been given everything that the church needs and that all the latent dormant gifts and all the other people are just unnecessary and surplus to requirement and so on the empowerment the manifestation of the holy spirit is intensely individual but it is also intensely corporate that's the common good isn't it The intense focus on the individual is an intense focus on everyone because this is our main verse. Each is given the manifestation of the common good. So there is a sense in which if we if we make it all about the gifting of one one man, it's damaging everybody. So 
Are our churches in functional agreement with this or not? Is your church in functional agreement with this or not? What does an imbalanced emphasis on the, on the charisma of a few have on the common good? I think these are important questions to wrestle with. I want to just read a couple of quotes to finish from the prior book because I think this is very helpful just to think about this, the importance of not only the individual gift but the fact that gifts are supposed to be displayed one person called a guy called Tom Smale has written, "Spirit must not be spiritualized." Again, that, that comes back to that kind of common spiritual uh, understanding of things that needs to be resisted. The spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, must not be spiritualized. He operates in body, and his business there is to produce visible glory, which all who have eyes for reality can see. He intends to make himself felt and known through his gifts as well as by his fruit. So we finish today with that thought that he gives gifts, that genuine Christian spirituality is where the Holy Spirit has proclaimed the, 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 the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that there is a genuine understanding of that through faithful teaching and handling of the scriptures, that people have responded to that gospel message in faith, have become new creations in Jesus. The old has gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17, and that within that there is this intense focus on the gift-giving spirit to the individual, as we've read in verse 7 today. To each is given, to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good, for the common good. And that in such as people coming into Christ, becoming redeemed, regenerate, they have within them the individual sense of being given gifts, but also then the the place that they find functioning, they should do within the body as a whole. There is this display of the gifts of the Spirit. And of course, that doesn't happen for cessationists because they, they believe in all serious heresy, I think, that that doesn't happen. And, and the hyper-charismatics make it all about that to the expense of the devotion, the simple devotion to Christ. I mean, take some hyper-charismatic context. There are question marks over whether Jesus was fully divine, for example. Let's pray. Father, I want to just stop now because I've said a lot and I've tried to keep it short and probably failed. But Lord, I ask that in what I've said this morning, there would be a recognition, something like scales removing from people's eyes, perhaps who have called them themselves and thought of themselves as Christians for many years, or those who are seeking and haven't responded to that gospel of the proclamation of your death on a cross, haven't understood that. Lord, I pray that you would remove any scale that prevents people from seeing what it truly means to be spiritual, rooted in the Lordship of you, Jesus, and that we would be truly, genuinely rooted and submitted and surrendered to your lordship and that you would have your way in our lives individually, individually and corporately. Lord, I pray for those who are um, like a plant in the wrong pot. I pray, pray for those whose roots are stifled and stunted because they're in a place, they're in a system, they're in an establishment, they're in an institution that makes it all about the charisma of one or two or the few, the minority, and it doesn't release as a pastor does, as a shepherd does, as as an under-shepherd does. They don't release those gifts or encourage those gifts or train and... Uh, Lord, I, we, we pray together now that the, the genuine fruit of your lordship, surrender to your lordship, would result 
more widely in the church at this time. Remove the scales from our eyes. Remove the scales from anyone listening today. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode. You trusted. It's been a blessing. If you want to help us take these media podcasts and videos and so forth into a new level of production, please do consider going to our Patreon page. You can find that link in the show notes and consider becoming one of our supporters. We'd be grateful. Until next week, let's keep praying. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm.